If you have your Bibles, please turn to Philippians. We've spent a few times in this particular book, and so today we're going to look at Philippians, the last, last part of it, because it's a wonderful, both a promise and also a prayer for the people of God. The area of attention this morning is going to be in verse 19, but to get the context, let me read verses 10 through the end of the chapter. Let us give careful attention to the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of need, of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's, Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy and inspired word. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you again and delight in being able to, to see your word and to read your word and to hear your word. We pray, Lord, as we recognize that once again we are on hallowed ground with your word, but also your spirit is walking among us, and the angels are here as well. In the presence of the living God, the Lord Jesus Christ is also aware of what is going on in our hearts and minds this morning as we come to offer ourselves as a living and a holy sacrifice to a holy and sovereign God. So Lord, as we worship you, we pray that you would teach us how to be more like Jesus each and every day. We pray this in his name, amen. What a marvelous letter the Apostle Paul, under the power of the Holy Spirit, has penned for us. I think most of us, if we've been around and reading the scriptures, especially Philippians, we know a little bit about the context, the history of it. We know that 
Paul was not desiring necessarily to go to Macedonia. Paul was desiring to go east, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was prevented from going east, and he received a vision from a man in Macedonia bidding and asking that he come there because of the needs that they were experiencing. So the Apostle Paul went to Macedonia and to Philippi. It's interesting, as he enters into Philippi, he meets a lady by the name of Lydia. She's a seller of purple. She's a business lady. She has a fear of God, the scripture says, but she really doesn't know the one true God. So in God's providence, the Apostle Paul teaches her. And again, in God's providence and his lavishing love upon her, she is drawn to a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul and Silas are moving around Philippi, they encounter a woman who, who reads, a young lady who reads uh, uh, the future, supposedly. And they, are and they rebuke her. A lot of the people who make a living off of her telling fortunes are a little upset. And Paul and Silas are beaten and thrown into jail. And what are they doing? At midnight that night, they're singing hymns and they're praying. And God, in a divine measure, showing his power, he opens the prison for them. And Paul and Silas walk out and they meet that uh, one who is guarding the prisoners. He thinks he's going to be killed the next day because the prisoners are going to be gone. And yet Paul stops him. Paul shares the gospel with him. And that night, he and his family are saved as well, just like Lydia. The families were saved. They were baptized. They were believers. The Philippian jailer, he and his family believed, and they also were baptized. Paul was used powerfully in Philippi. It's a decade later, and the apostle Paul is writing because he has received Epaphroditus because he is now in jail in Rome. He was arrested in Jerusalem, taken to Rome, preparing to be uh, in the court there, not expecting to die as a result of that. But the, but the people there in Philippi love him so much, they send Epaphroditus to him with a gift. We don't know exactly what that gift is. Could be money, probably is, probably some clothing, maybe to keep warm during the winter, if that's the time. It could be uh, almost anything, but it was a gift that was sent. And I'm always appreciative of the Apostle Paul. He's always, he's not thinking so much of himself. In fact, he really isn't. I mean, when you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and also Acts chapter 14, he's not thinking about himself at all. He's thinking about the glory of God. He's thinking about the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's thinking about how he can be used by God to build the kingdom of God by building the church, reaching people with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one of the things that he mentions here in Philippians, and it's a theme it's kind of amazing. It's amazing to me every time I read Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. If I'm in prison, I'm not sure I could do the same thing. I'm probably going to be moaning and groaning about my life. Hi, why has God forsaken me? But not Paul. Oftentimes he's singing, he's praying, he's, he's rejoicing in the Lord because of what God has done for him. What has he done? 
He saved them there on the Damascus Road, having stood by and watching Stephen being stoned to death, trying to get rid of those people who were following after Jesus Christ, known as the way. He was going to Damascus and God changes him. And at that very moment, moment he is changed. He becomes a new creature in Christ Jesus. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new for the Apostle Paul. Just like when we come to saving faith, it's all old stuff. Now all things have become new in Jesus Christ. He, uh, he's writing this, Philippians, this letter, to both encourage and exhort the people of God. To encourage and to exhort. What does he say in Philippians chapter 1? That God has begun a good work in us, and he's going to complete it. God has called us from before the foundations of the world. God has called us as we have heard the gospel and as he has irresistibly drawn us into a relationship with the living God, he has given us his Holy Spirit that we might live in the spirit of God day in and day out for the rest of our life until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. He who began a good work in us will complete that. Please hear that. If you're a Christian, you cannot turn away from the faith. You have been brought into the family of God and he keeps you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want to invite you to come to know Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But he's exhorting, encouraging the people here. He's also, in Philippians chapter 1, he says, uh, this, my circumstances in prison have increase the kingdom of God because he's not just sitting there twiddling his thumbs thinking about you know when I might be able to get out no when the prisoners when the other prisoners come in he's sharing the gospel when the when the guards are there he's sharing the gospel when visitors are coming there he's sharing the gospel his life is dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ sharing the gospel building the church building the kingdom of God to the glory of God and he also gives some exhortations in this letter. He says, live, with, live a life of worthiness because of the Savior. He says also, rid yourselves of selfishness and pride. He says also, consider others better than yourselves. He also says, in humility, model life modeled the life of Christ. Live as children of God in a crooked and perverse generation. Imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ. Wow, what a, what a figure to imitate. We think we're supposed to, and we are supposed to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ, but we look at Paul's life, and his life is to have an impact upon us, and what we see in Paul's life is the life that we want for ourselves. We want to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And then he comes down to Philippians chapter 4, and the one that I want to speak to in particular after he says, don't be anxious, uh, don't fill your minds with things that aren't necessarily good, be content 
in your union with Christ. And then he says, have you a sure knowledge that God will provide for your every need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I submit to you today that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, has the power and the resources to do more than we even ask or imagine. Uh, that's a phrase that Paul uses in Ephesians. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or imagine. Sometimes we, we ask for so little. But God is saying, and through the Apostle Paul, that God is not a small God. God is a large God with a large desire to see us grow. Ask, believing that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or imagine. In this uh, particular passage, I want us to look at a couple things. First, the generosity of the Philippian Christians. That's really important because he receives a gift and he describes it as a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Again, we don't know whether it's money, clothing, or, or maybe it's parchment in order to write some things on, but but he receives that, and he's kind of overwhelmed because the Philippians were probably, at least for a while, the only ones supporting him. I mean, he was a tent maker. He could support, to some degree, himself, but when you're going around preaching the gospel like he did in Ephesus, he visited every home in Ephesus, sharing the gospel. I don't know how many homes were there, but he was in the marketplace, he was in the synagogues, he was going all around Ephesus for three years, and the church was built up. He was working, doing tent-making business, and sharing the gospel every opportunity that he had. And so here, he's in jail again, in prison, in Rome, and Epaphroditus in the church in Philippi sends him this gift, and he calls it a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And there are other places in the scriptures, especially in Genesis chapters 4 and 8, where we see the same sort of thing, where God is pleased with the offering that is brought to him both by Abel and also by Noah. But I want you to hear a little bit from the scriptures in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 about what generosity really is because one of the uh, fruits, I think, of the Spirit and the, and the, and the uh, ability that God gives to the people of God is a gift of liberality. You know, sometimes people are, I don't know about you, hopefully not, some people are quite tight-fisted. They hold on to everything that they have. The thought of maybe sharing it with the church is not much of a thought for them. They've got too many other things to think about. Buying a house, buying cars, taking care of the kids, going to getting their education. All of these things are important, but there's a generosity element amongst the people of God. You see it here in Philippi. It's not about us. 
It's not, what about, not about what we accumulate in life because we can't take it with us. We came into this world with nothing. We're leaving this world with nothing. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But this is what Paul writes in Corinthians because the situation is that there's a famine in Jerusalem. So Paul is going around to the various churches trying to raise money to help feed those Christians those professing Christians in Jerusalem. And he comes to those in Macedonia, and this is what he, he writes. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. What are the problems? Extreme poverty, a severe test of affliction. And now, now they're overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and behold and beyond their means of their own free will, begging. Get this, begging. They were poor and they were begging Paul. Don't leave us. Don't go to the other church. We want to make a contribution to our brothers and sisters. We don't know them. We haven't seen them. We know that they're there. We know that they're going through a difficult time. So, Paul, we're begging you, take it from us, no matter how poor we are. And uh, I don't know. I find that rather amazing. And this is not what was expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you the act of grace. But as you excel in everything, maybe you excel in faith and in speech and in knowledge and in earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. I say this not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Christ becomes poor, that we might become rich. And then just one last passage that's over in chapter 9. Again, talking about the cheerful giver. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one should give as he has made up in his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound in you so that you have all sufficiency. In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He also supplies seed to the sower and bread for food and supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry, this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. But their approval of this service, by their approval of this service, will glorify God because of your submission, 
following from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contributions to them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. The gift of liberality. Wow, these people were poor and yet they were made rich in Christ. And God blessed them and promised to bless them and continue to bless them in their lives. Not, he doesn't want his people to be tight-fisted. He doesn't want them to give because they are almost compelled to give. He wants them to give out of a full heart and a full understanding of what it means to have been saved and brought into the family of God and to be used of God in the kingdom of God. He wants us to understand all that. What do they receive? And Paul mentions, when people do that, when the church gives, and gives liberally, what will they receive? They will be blessed. They will have a good conscience in terms of promoting and prospering the church that it may move out into the world and share the gospel. Their friendship and fellowship will be enriched with one another. They will increase in joy and in love. And on Judgment Day, they will be praised by the Almighty God. So the generosity of the Philippians, poor, but gave it all, almost. The Apostle Paul's response to the church's generosity, that's important as well. He is uh, really, I'm sure, overwhelmed that the church would send Epaphroditus and bring this gift or gifts to him while he's in prison. And as I said earlier, this particular verse can be used as a promise and also a prayer. And it's interesting here, Paul there in verse 19 says this, and my God, that's the title of the sermon today, my God, I don't know if you've ever thought about that so much, but he is my God. He is your God if you're a Christian. He's the one who owns everything, who has all things for, to be good for the people of God, to share with them, to be good and to be pouring out his grace and mercy upon us at all times. He is my God. Paul says, he is my God. And he says, my God. Supply every need, will supply every need of yours according to his riches in the glory in Christ Jesus. See, Paul was really indebted to God, as, as we all are. He made us for one thing, and he's redeemed us through his son for another thing. And he's given us his Holy Spirit. But but he's he's taken away with God. He's taken back and, and he's so pleased with that. And he he, he wants to, knowing that his sins have been forgiven, his past sins have been paid for in full by Jesus Christ, he wants that residue of sin that still is in him to be taken away. He wants to know God. I don't know 
how many of us really want to make it our desire in life to know God? This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3. He, he gave this recitation of, of his background, that he was born into, in, in a certain tribe, that he was uh, circumcised on the eighth day, that he was studied under Gamaliel, one of the, one of the most foremost theologians of the rabbinic world. He had all of these benefits, and he looked at all of that. He, he even said he was a persecutor of the church. He, he called that as something that was an accomplishment at one time. And he looked at that, and he looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, and he saw what he had experienced, new life in Christ, and he looked at all that he had, all the credentials on his wall, all the accolades, no doubt he had heard about his life and what kind of contribution he made to the rabbinic area and, and that sort of thing. But he says, I, I think all of that is a bunch of dung. It's worthless. It's not important necessarily of the family that I came from. It's not important necessarily from the education that I received and all the things that I may have hanging on my walls. Paul says, I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of the resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. Paul loved God. He says, my God, who is from everlasting to everlasting, the most high created everything and upholds everything. He is the God who called Abraham out of a decadent background, brought Abraham into him. Abraham believed on him and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham received the covenant promises to be a God only not on to, to Abraham, but to Abraham's children and children's children. And that Abraham at one time who did not have a, a, a young man to pass that on along to, God gave Abraham and, and, and Sarah Isaac. And so from that one came a people as numerous as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. He promised that he would be a God unto them and also that all the nations would be blessed through him. He also said that those people would receive an inheritance, a land, a land flowing with milk and honey. All those promises that God gave to Abraham have come true. In fact, we're here today in some sense because of that Old Testament promise, that covenant promise. But we have a New Testament covenant promise that's better than the Old Testament covenant promise. He also delivered uh, the people of Israel out of bondage and he allowed them to walk through the Red Sea on dry land. He led them for 40 years in the desert. He opened the waters of the Jordan River and led them into the land that God had promised to Abraham. He's the God of Abraham. He's the God of Moses. He's the God of Paul. He's the God of David and Elijah and Jeremiah, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who died for our salvation. This God revealed to some degree what heaven's going to be like to the Apostle Paul when Paul was taken up to the third heaven and he saw and heard things that are inexpressible in this world. But what he saw was absolutely astounding. This was a, a Paul's God. 
He is my God. I trust that he is your God. What a God. What a God. He meets our needs. He's promised to meet our every need, not our every want. Because sometimes we want a lot. I had some wants. I would not share with you what my wants were because they were so embarrassing. I was early in my, in my growth and maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he promises to meet our every need. And you see that in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, you're wondering about what you're going to eat or wear, what you're going to drink. He says, don't worry about that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things, the food, the drink, the clothing, all the things that you need and we need to sustain our lives, God has promised to provide for us. I haven't done that much. I haven't done what I'm about to do very often, but it kind of goes along with this text. So I'm, I'm going to take personal privilege and say something about what God has done in my life briefly. And I'm basically using a text that comes out of Psalm 66 where it says, Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for me and for my soul. Last week I shared with you that our youngest daughter was in the hospital, intensive care, for a couple of weeks near death. God in his providence spared her life, thank God. She's 40 years old, married, six children, thriving in the things of our Lord. And we're so happy and pleased. Well, two weeks in intensive care in an American hospital is not cheap. Most people have insurance that may take 80% of the cost of staying in the hospital. I wasn't thinking about what we would have to pay for. I never thought about that. But one time, a deacon from First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, we were members of that church before I, before I became an intern at another PCA church. But a, a deacon called me, uh, I think it was one night, and he said, I, I understand what has happened. I understand that you have a daughter. She's been very sick in the hospital, in the ICU, Nick, NICU. And he says, I don't know what we can do, but we want to help on the expenses. I said, wow. I hadn't even thought about that. I, haven't even, I didn't even pray about what it would cost us. I was, I was praying for the well-being of, of my daughter. I wanted her to live. And so I get this call, and he said, I don't know exactly what we can do at first press, but you know, I want you, I wanted you to know that I never received the bill. Normally it's 20% of the cost. It should have cost me thousands of dollars. First Presbyterian Deacon's Fund paid it all. On another occasion, we were in the hospital still, and there was a lady with lupus, and some of you know what lupus is. It's an autoimmune disease. And she was older, not in good health. But she came and she stayed hours at a time with us for days, it seemed like. And one day she's leaving and, and she puts, I know, I've got my shirt, got my pocket there, and she puts some money in there. I'm thinking, it's probably $5 or $10 or something like that. I pulled it out 
It was a $100 bill. But in 1982, a $100 bill was a lot of money. And she says, you're going to need this, you and your wife, so that you can buy your food in the hospital because I'm not sure my wife ever went home during those two weeks because she had some uh, uh, problems anyway that she was getting taken care of at the hospital because she couldn't feed, breastfeed her child. So, so she gave us $100. That $100 was spent on food in the hospital. I don't think we paid any more. She gave us $100. It was used. I came to my last year in seminary, and I ran out of money. I had no money. I was working, providing enough for the family, for the house, for food. Uh, Gertie, I think, did some babysitting as well. But I, I thought, I, can't, I don't have any money. So I was going to the administration to say something, tell them I, I, I can't go any farther, you know? I don't have the money. And before I got there, I received notification at a church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Some of you may wonder why I'm an Alabama fan. Well, I live in Alabama now. I do like the football. But a church, a PCA church in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, paid for my last year in seminary and all the books that came with, along with the classes. And then one last thing. I could tell you, I probably all afternoon, I didn't ask for the money. Uh, I didn't ask God to give me the money. I just said, Lord, I, I'm, I'm just out. I don't have any other resources. And I didn't ask any money to pay for the hospital bill. I didn't ask for any of those things. I didn't ask for, I didn't ask for the $100 bill, but I got a $100 bill that paid for our food. I got a car. We got a car given to us when we wrecked our car up in Minnesota. Someone came to us and said, here's a car. It will cost you $1 to transfer the title. I mean, I, I have seen the generosity and the liberal, uh, and the liberal uh, attitude toward money of sharing that with those who are in need. Was I in need when, when our daughter was in the hospital? Was I in need of, of food there? Was I in need of additional income so that I could finish my education? I, I thought when I took Hebrew, that might be the end of it. By the grace of God, I got through Hebrew, but I didn't have the money to pay for that last year of seminary. And I didn't have the money to buy a new car. Now, the car I received was not new, but it was a very fine car. I gave it away when I came to Germany for one dollar. I had another clunker that I gave away for free. I probably paid the dollar for that one. So the guy, he needed it, but it wasn't that good. But it was functional. It wasn't pretty, but it was functional. But I say all of this to say, sometimes I haven't even had the wherewithal to ask. And what does God do? He pours out his love toward us through the people of God who have a heart and a generous mindset of helping people who are in need. What a God. He's Paul's God. He's my God. He's your God. As a follower of Christ. So he meets our needs. He meets our physical needs. He meets our emotional needs. He meets our spiritual needs. What does 
What do we read in Joshua chapter 1? Joshua is taking over the leadership. Moses is dead, and he's going to lead a nation of probably 2 to 5 million people into the land of promise. Sometimes it's hard to lead a family, but when you've got multiple families and millions of people, how's, how is Joshua going to do it? And God speaks to Joshua, and he says to Joshua, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord will be with you wherever you go. Meditate upon the law of God morning and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in the law so that you may be prosperous and successful. You want to know a, 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 a way to prosperity, not in a material sense, but a, in a sense of knowing God. Is taking his word, reading his word, meditating upon his word, praying his word back to him, praying for your needs, all of those things. And he says to, says to Joshua, do that, be strong, be courageous, don't be afraid. There's a lot of feel, fearful Christians in this world. Live out your life every day to the glory of God. Don't be afraid, be full of courage and fill your mind and your heart with the word of God and meditate upon it day and night. I also love what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. All things work together for good to those who are called by God. Uh, and he finishes it off there that, that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. He holds us in his hand. He started a work in us and he's going to fulfill that work to the very end. And so all things will work together for our good. Nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not life, nor death, nor anything else. And he also says in 2 Peter, we have everything that we need for life and godliness. Everything. God doesn't shortchange us. He gives us his word. He gives, us, he gives us his spirit. He gives us everything that we need for life and for godliness. And lastly, just two things. How will God provide? He will provide according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, God owns it all. Cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is his. I'm his. You're his. Your house is his. Your car is his. Everything that you have is his. He's given it to you. He's allowed you to work. He's given you the wherewithal and ability, physical and mental ability to do that. But it all belongs to him. We can't ask too much from God. Oftentimes we ask so little. It's almost as we don't believe that God can answer our prayers. But I would remind you of what he said in, that Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, where he says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or imagine. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you can ask or imagine. What are you asking for today? 
And then lastly, he does it because of Christ Jesus. And we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, who who began, who he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things that we need? So the question is, what is your concern today? Is it for material goods? Ask. Is it for growth and grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Ask. Is it for protection? Ask. Is it for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises? Ask. Lord, you promised to be a God to us. God, you promised to forgive us for our sins and to grant us eternal life. God, you promised us a new heaven and new earth. Lord God, would you fill, fulfill your promises in all of those things? Because he bids us to come and cast our cares upon him because he cares for us. He asks us to come and, and, and come to the throne of grace and to receive help in, in our time of need. And he is the good shepherd who provides everything that we need. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is there meeting every one of our needs. What a God. What a Savior. He's my God. I trust he's your God. If not, today may be, may be the day that he becomes your God and that Christ becomes your Savior. If you'd like to talk to me afterward or any of the elders, please do so. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you are such an awesome God. And so sometimes that word awesome is used too liberally in our society because really the one who is absolutely awesome beyond all measure is a holy and triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Father, we pray that you would show yourself to be mighty amongst us and in us. And we pray that rather than worrying about what we're going to eat or drink or how we're going to pay our bills, whatever the case may be, Lord, that we may bring them to the throne of grace and cast them upon you because there is one thing that we know, that you have lavished us with your love and that you will meet all of our needs according to your riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Hear our prayers in the name of Jesus. Amen.